So now I would like to welcome Ravindra Joshi ji. Ravindra Joshi ji is an engineering research and simulation professional with over 20 years of experience in global MNC. He has an MS in mechanical engineering and an MS in engineering management from Drexel University, Philadelphia. He is board member of WAVES, World Association of Vedic Studies, and is also the co-founder of the online Medha journal, medhajournal.com. Long-time resident in US, Ravi is also actively involved in the local Hindu temple and is a teacher, mentor, and founder of the decade-old Sanatan Dharma School. He has also presented talks and papers at many conferences, including WAVES, HMEC, and the first Swadeshi Indology Conference held in 2016 at IIT Chennai. I would like to welcome Ravindra Joshi ji. Namaste, everyone. So without further ado, maybe I can get started with my presentation. Um, Sunil has very nicely covered quite a lot of good ground, so I'll try not to be repetitive. Um, much of my paper is attempting to basically do what the headline says. Basically, I'm questioning Western Indology for ignoring Hindu, the Buddha, Hindu Buddhist common meta frame. And obviously, when you have a meta frame, the meta frame is containing other frameworks inside it. So the contention is that the dharmic metaframe contains different dharmic puns of which Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, etc. are many. And Sanatana Dharma as the mothership, so to speak, is like the one which sort of originates and spawns different, different puns. So as an intro introduction, I, I will attempt to refute some of the claims of uh, uh, Sheldon Pollock. I'll try to set some background, essentially uh, problematizing the idea of using religion versus the internal emic idea of using dharma when we describe Buddha's teachings and the experience versus everything else. So the idea is that if the religion lens, if the lens of religion is not used, then many of these Indologies axioms do not make much sense. So when you contrast Hinduism versus, versus Buddhism, why should you presume two very separate self-standing entities? Because only when you presume two separate self-standing entities can you really sit and contrast them, which is what most Indologists do, and Sheldon Pollock has taken it to a really long way. And my other contention is that there's an interdisciplinary approach required. Ancient, ancient India had different categories, and the categorization was very different from current Western disciplines. And as an example, one of the Western scholars that I am kind of getting deeper and deeper into is, is, is the scholar Emmanuel Wallerstein. And he has this world systems theory. And in that, one of the key things he talks about is how the current disciplines of social sciences came to be. So we start with somewhere in the 17th century, uh, there's this influential paper by C.P. Snow about the two cultures the culture of science on one side and humanities on the other side. And from there, it, it moves on. Basically, history starts separating itself out. And history wants to be empirical, which is data-driven, but it is not searching for universal laws. And during the 19th century, liberal Western governments, like say, for example, the French government, they wanted much more data-driven ideas to understand their own culture. So hence, the, the sciences of, uh, social sciences of economy, so, uh, economics, sociology were born. 
And these were applicable to just the five countries that had enough data. And the idea was that the data from those can easily be applied to all the other countries because after all, everything is human experience is universal. That was the presumption. So these five countries, as you might have guessed, are uh, uh, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and the US. So then during that time, colonization, etc., was already happening. And they were discovering a lot of other uh, cultures which to them did not have history. So then for them was devised the idea of anthropology. So when we come to India, India kind of falls in between because it got classified from the romantic times, India, China got classified as high civilizations, civilizations that had their own written history, their own writings and, and a universal religion and many other things that qualified them to be high civilizations. So how do you tackle high civilizations? It was, it was selected that high civilizations shall be tackled by looking at their texts, which is where the science of philology and all that came in. And this is, this is kind of the birthplace from which Orientalism basically took its place. So now moving on to some details. Some of the slides, I have too many slides here, so I'll quickly run through them. Um, some of these are basically setting the background for Western Indology. It's a sophisticated, applicable fra framework, globally applicable, when religion is used as a fulcrum. But what religion means when used for non-Abrahamic societies, that is societies that do not have Judeo-Christian or Islamic ethos, it means that the Western worldview is being mapped onto them. India is a particular case in point. European colonization basically took this whole thing global. Even non-colonized countries like Japan started talking about religions. The world religion in India, of course, has pretty much gone native. We all talk, even people in Hindi also, they talk, talk aapka religion kya hai and so on. So we have kind of internalized it to such an extent that it's become unavoidable. It's easy to show up contrasts between Hinduism and Buddhism when looked at as religions. Because the standard tropes go that Hinduism is ahistorical, it's theistic, it talks about being and about ultimate reality as infinite and permanent like the Brahman. Buddhism is supposed to be historical because it's got a founder and then it's many ways they try to push it into being atheistic. It talks about becoming and it says that the ultimate reality is shunyata or nothing as per a very trivialized definition. And they, they generally the use of, of strong parallels with the Protestant Christianity, how it grew out of Catholicism. You know, both of them seem to be growing out. Buddhism is also supposedly growing out of Hinduism by going away from outmoded ritual and priestly hierarchy, you know, the evil Brahmins, etc. So they studiously ignore the possibility of categorizing based on the available meta framework of India's own dharmic system. And we all have this as an internal definition, but by the time we go through any educational system, we adopt the terminology of religions. And uh, Rajiv's, uh, Rajiv Malhotra's book, Being Different, was particularly seminal in trying to, in a very integrated way, try to uh, use the dharmic categories. Some more details about that. I think their, their chronology, their linear historical sensibilities, etc., usage of Aryan invasion theory. Uh, and then, of course, basically, Hinduism is blamed for India's ills. That's one of the key things. So we come to Sheldon Pollock. Basically, does a, he does this compare and contrast to, to great extremes, and that the ills of the Indian society are products of Hinduism. Now, here comes the, the very interesting part, which I discovered. Many of you might have known this before, but the fact is that there is Indology 
for studies of India and there is Buddhology, study of Buddhism. And the key reason for that is basically, this is how the history of this discipline has evolved. The key reason is that the West got initially exposed to Buddhism, not from its cradle in India. Even today, a lot of Westerners do not associate Buddhism with anything to do with India. It's an Asian religion, which by which they mean the Far East, China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. And the difference is that Buddhologists generally had a lot more pan-Asian linguistic and cultural competence. They didn't need to just know one language. They had to know Chinese, to know Chinese Buddhism. They had to know Japanese, to, to know Japanese Buddhism, and Southeast Asian countries, and their culture and ethos. So they had a much broader, wider framework from which they worked. And here's the funny part. Buddhism, because they saw it and triangulated it from many, many different cultures, appeared like a very stable category. So they could easily pigeonhole it into a category called a stable religion. And Hinduism on the other side was being analyzed by Indologists, and it looked like it was a very different category. The fate of Hinduism for the Indologists kept changing, going up and down, up and down, with the changing perception of India in the non-Western eyes. You know, the romantic interest before they colonized India was like India was the Voltaire and so on, the mother, everything is found on the bank of Ganges and so on. But then when they colonized and it became like this is a pit of superstition and so on and so forth. So there's this, this kind of schizophrenia in terms of what, how Indologists see Hinduism. Uh, and some of the other problems are that there is no serious comparison shown between the relationship of violence or problems in society. You know, you have to do an intercultural comparison, which usually never happens. India is just treated as an isolated case. Now, here we come to uh, Sheldon Pollock's uh, big plank that he uses in terms of using this whole idea of actuality, the actual age, which is basically, from what I understand through my, from my reading, it's a hypothesis. It is not a proven, as much as things in the human sciences or history can be proven fact, it's not a fact that there was an actual age. So the idea is that there was increasing reflexivity as societies were developing, the ability to look at yourself as a society and then write down your own observations, have things in writing in order to critique and problematize them. The Greco-Semitic cases are a paradigm starting point for it because they look at, looked at their own world and they saw, oh yeah, the, in, the, in Greece, you know, all the philosophers, all the big ones were during that 500 BC plus minus 100, 200 years. And similarly, the uh, Judeo-Christian prophets were during that time, so that was an actual age. And then they tried to extend that thesis over to the rest of the world, right? So Buddhism is easily captured in that because it's got pan-Asian spread and a lot of history, and it's also invoked as an actual age. So the actual age hypothesis has two, uh, as usual, any hypothesis will have a strong form, and if that doesn't work, then there, there's a fallback option of having a weak form. So the strong form we just discussed, the weak form is basically saying, yeah, yeah, there were many different breakthroughs during different civilizations, and the timeline gets extended to plus minus 500 years. So then you kind of wonder what's the use of this hypothesis. It's got some uses in some context, but is it useful in the context that we are talking about here? So it's a very refutable thing whether Buddhism was an actual uh, disruption for India. Because that's what Pollock's claim is, that it, it caused a civilization-level disruption in India. The point is, Buddhism, even if it, it was some sort of a breakthrough that uh, uh, Gautama Buddha, Bhagavan Buddha, as we call in Hindu, 
Hinduism. Uh, even if we affected a bit through, was it a civilization level disruption? And that the phenomenon of someone like the Buddha is not unique inside India. Even during his times, you know, the Ajivikas, the, the Jains, and it was going on. The Shramana movement was in full flow. And from that time to now, there's an unbroken tradition of having people leaving the Grahastha Ashram and going to Vanaprastha and conducting the similar kind of things that Buddha did. It's, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't take any, away any of the credit of how well the Buddhist thought, thought world has worked and the whole tradition has worked, but still it's a fact that it, it wasn't unique in any sense. Um, comparing the, the, the Vedic side of things, the Samhitas to the Brahmanas to the Aranyakas to the Upanishad, there, there's also a sort of a timeline there. And it's also a textually mapped journey inside our text that we can see. That it's for Vedic thought, which is very similar to the Buddha-inspired one. And the other key point is that a civilization can be a high civilization in spite of, or sometimes even because of, its trans text transmission being oral. We'll come to that point in some of the later slides. So now, Indologists like Pollock have a hard time dealing dealing with or explaining why there was so much accurate and integral text transmission that is maintained in the Vedic corpus even today. They would rather talk about dead texts and then speculate on the motives of the writers and readers and engage with the living tradition. So the alternate way we just talked about Wallerstein's world system, it kind of tells you why Western analysis of societies is kind of straight jacketed in certain ways that it, it's like those axioms are already in place and they will produce certain results. So it's not an open-ended inquiry. So the key axiomatic assumptions again for them is that two separate self-standing religions and that Gautam Buddha started a protest movement and then that some of these are through and through Pollock's writings. Much of the post-Vedic writings, especially the Aranikas and Upanishads that de deal with Jnana, the, Here's where the historical timelines start getting inverted and they say that, hey, they didn't exist during Buddha's time. You know, all these came later or they were a reaction to what Buddha did. And it's assumed that knowledge as knowledge was not something that the Vedic people were interested in. They were just interested in, uh, for the purposes of, of power, interested in mystifying the commoners in order to have a hold on the commoners. So when we look at things philosophically, you go interdisciplinary. We don't have all these polemics and these timelines and priorities. Then you see basically that there's huge commonalities that the claims of actual breakthrough are not really worth doing. And then we had the previous presentation, Buddha's own statements in many ways that he was just saying, I'm reiterating ancient knowledge. Much of it might have gotten corrupted and social forces and so on. So he was just trying to clean up and present it. So the, there was already a pre-existing distinction between Pravrati and Nivritti Marga. He didn't create that. Nothing unique, basically. And it's not, this is one key point that gets missed out, that Buddha never advocated any socially radical or revolutionary thing, the way Judaic prophets or later Christian institutions used to do, which is negate everything in the past and suddenly start with something new. Wasn't doing that. Even Pollock in his, in his book, in his, um, uh, the actual empires, that, that, that article, actual empires, even he sort of, he's a very smart scholar, very capable and able, so he will tell you that yes, there was no, no political ramifications of Buddha's actual 
breakthrough in, in the intellect and philosophical domain. And then he'll somehow skirt around the question. Then one needs to question whether there was really anything actual going on if it didn't have any societal ramifications. And the, idea, the, the key point is that the dif there's a huge difference between how Christianity and others worked and how Buddhism worked. Five minutes left? Okay. So the receiving culture basically adapts and adopts Buddhism to its own social purposes. The one thing I think I'll move on, basically the, the debates between the Buddhists and the Nyaya people and all the other schools were always based on Pramana Shastra, except that the fact that the Shabda Pramana Veda was something that he, he and his followers did not follow. So all the other Pramanas were being used. So why are they religions at all? So in this, I think without me going too much in depth, there's a lot of strong correlation between the Samkhya framework and the Buddhist framework, the Vaibhashika framework and the Vaisheshika framework. So I have some charts and maps and all that in the later ones. But one key thing I would like to talk about was, is the work of uh, Fritz Stahl. Okay, there are some quotes from Pollock. People will have read this. As usual, it will be long, long sentences, but basically making the key points that we discussed. And uh, this idea of ethical inversion, that his idea of dharma was different from the sacrifice, which he never calls yagna, because yagna really doesn't mean sacrifice in a very, very small way. So those are all Pollock's actuality. Okay, so Fritz Stahl, who is one of the people that we can look at for having given a much more comprehensive framework than just a textually based one. He basically uses, even if you want to look at something as a religion, you have to analyze it through like, he uses a, uh, Emile Durkheim's uh, framework first, and then he says that's not enough, and he uses an extended Durkheim framework, where, by, where he adds mysticism and meditative practices to the existing doctrine and ritual frameworks. And then he basically shows that Vedic ritual had no, had no instrumental meaning in the mundane world. The rituals are, the Shrauta Sutras, the rituals and all that are there just to be done. So the doctrine part is actually secondary, it's an addition from the late. And then he has this beautiful, very detailed explanation of why rituals are sciences. And then basically, this is a direct quote from Sal. He said, Buddha didn't preach in a vacuum. You know, teachings were not preceded by Jainism, and we've already discussed all this. And there was nothing much doctrinal innovations. So there's, Stahl is someone who's given a very broad-based framework, so it's very useful. But much of what he said can be corroborated by many other philosophers also. So I have that. And then my personal opinion, you can, when you study something, you can be a scholar, a doctor, a prosecutor. Sheldon Pollock pretty much works in the prosecutorial mode. If you look at it, a public prosecutor is also supposed to solve the case just like a scholar and a doctor is supposed to study. But he is kind of incentivized to produce a guilty verdict, which is very similar to what Pollock and others do. So basically, this is what my paper is basically showing, that it captures some key lacuna of Indology. It says that if you go interdisciplinary, it's, it's going to give, give the dharmic side a much deeper, broader, because we are a practicing living tradition, and we can refute all these. To help me, you can do two things. You can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Uh, secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, how do we donate? How can we help you? Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com 
and you can hit the donate button. You can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.